Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? I'm always, always grateful for our leaders who help us to sing God's praises. And by the way, if you've never noticed, it's a hard job. And so you should be grateful too. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Matthew 21, 12 through 17. This is the word of God for us today. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be, uh, shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Will you pray with me? Lord, here we are. We have sung truth. I pray that we've sung truth with hearts of joy and celebration. That you know our weaknesses. You know our distractions. You know our hurts. But here we are, with your word spread before us. Speak to us, I pray. Challenge, change, grow, convict, save. Do what only you can do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But having faith is far more than participating in religious practices. True faith is a belief that requires a life change. True faith turns away from empty religion to embrace the Savior in all of life. Today we return to the Gospel according to Matthew And we see in it a very important encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his day. And in this encounter, faith, genuine faith, faith that brings about repentance and life change, that kind of faith, that's at the center of what God wants us to learn today. And the call to genuine faith, faith that changes us, is what we should take from this passage as well. If you're a note taker, you could make room for three main points. And let's watch as God calls us to faith. And let's watch as God calls us to avoid deadly, empty religion. So our first point, if you want to go ahead and write the first point down, repent of empty religion. Repent of empty religion. Now, before we look at the text for this point, which is going to be verses 12 and 13, 
I want to take our attention to something that I think is very important. I think it's often missed. And I believe it connects the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, you know, Jesus, Jesus on the donkey, to the overturning of the temples, uh, at the tables at the temple. There's a connection here. So if you have your Bible open, would you flip back actually to a short passage in Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 9. In, in this text, Daniel 9, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, about their future. Daniel is a prophet of God and he's writing during the days of the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Israel. The, 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 the Jews haven't gone back yet, so it's sometime before 538 B.C. And Daniel has prayed at the beginning of chapter 9 that God would have mercy on the Jews. That God would return them to their land. And God has told them he's about to do that. But as God speaks about the return of the Jews to the nation of Israel, to the land of Israel, God gives what I would say to you is a promise and an ultimatum. Daniel 9, verse 24, 24 to 26. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. God there tells Daniel, there's a decree. God has made. There are 70 prophetic weeks involved in this decree. And further study would tell us that these weeks are not sets of seven days, but they are sets of seven years. Thus, this prophecy appears to be speaking of a 490-year period of history. And the angel communicating God's words to Daniel points to a particular time marker. Something's going to happen to start the clock. And from the time the clock begins, Israel has a definite and determined period of time to put an end to their national rebellion. Quote, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So God tells Daniel, Daniel, you're praying for me to restore the land. Well, sometime soon, sometime involving the decree to return the Jews to Jerusalem and to let them rebuild, God says, I'm going to begin a countdown until the arrival of the promised Messiah. We call him an anointed one in verse 26. 
Now, there's something strange about how the clock starts because there's a reference to seven weeks and then 62 weeks, and they're separated somehow. And so we cannot exactly nail down with perfect knowledge when this countdown clock was to start. But there's no doubt that God is promising that the Jews are going to be given a command to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And there is a very clearly set amount of time from that point until the coming of the Messiah. And God tells Judah, the Jews, put away your rebellion. Get ready before the Messiah arrives. You've got 483 years. The prophecy also tells us, by the way, that Judah will not obey. They're going to remain in their sin. The anointed one, it says, is going to be cut off. The Christ will come. The Christ will find an Israel who has not returned to the true worship of the Lord. Christ will die. His death is going to bring about the judgment of God on the nation. Eventually, the the desolation of Jerusalem. And we know... What happened 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion? God allowed the Roman army to come in and destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe that this promise made by God to Daniel in chapter 9, I believe that connects to the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. You see, when Jesus rode that colt into Jerusalem, I believe Jesus was formally arriving as the anointed one. Just as God had promised. If you and I could see into the wisdom and the mind of God and understand perfectly his decrees, what we would see is that the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem is exactly the right time in that prophetic decree. Israel had been called to repent. The Jews were supposed to be ready to meet their king. And we know, by the way, that God had sent a forerunner about four years earlier to warn the nation, get ready, the time is just about here. It was John the Baptist. And he played the role of the one to immediately precede the arrival of the promised king from God. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, say to us, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What's in that promise of the forerunner? The appearance of God's promised king it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to go, he's going to show up at the temple. And he's going to be, bring about a refining, cleansing, powerful thing. Who can stand when he comes? Who will be ready? That's the question. Those promises of the Savior to come, the call for Israel to be ready, to repent, to prepare to meet their king. They all pointed to a singular day when the Savior would formally come in and present himself. And when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that was the day 
promised by the angel to Daniel. And at that moment, the clock had hit zero. It was time for the Jews to meet their king in true worship. But what did Jesus find when he rode into Jerusalem in Matthew 21? He found things he already knew would be there, didn't he? Three years before the triumphal entry, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus had come into the temple, Jesus had made a whip out of cords, and Jesus had driven the animal sellers and the money changers out of the temple. Now it's three years later, and Jesus has just entered Jerusalem as the promised king, and Jesus found the same sin in the place where God was supposed to be worshipped. Israel had not repented. The people were not ready to meet their king. The religious establishment had rejected their Messiah long before they ever cried out, crucify him. Now, let's look at our passage in Matthew 21. Verse 12 and 13 say, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, if we assume that Jesus rolled the colt into Jerusalem and declared himself to be the Messiah on Sunday of the Passion Week. Some people argue for Monday, but I don't think so. If we assume it happened on Sunday, then what we read here does happen on Monday, the day after he rode in. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he should have, according to the command in Daniel 9, he should have found a repentant nation with a cleansed temple. Instead, he found the merchants and he found the money changers in the area of the temple that's called the court of the Gentiles. The only place in the temple complex that non-Jewish people were allowed to go The only place where Gentiles like you and me could approach to have our sins atoned for, that place had been turned into a place of business. Some people even called that area the Bazaar of Annas because of the corrupt leader of the Jewish high priestly family. It was a guy named Annas. And he used that place and the selling of animals and the changing of money. He used that to bilk the people. He used it to line his own pockets. He used it to get rich by stealing. Now, what was the problem that Jesus saw, you ask? First, that area was supposed to be an area where Gentiles could come and pray where they could come and seek the grace of God. That should have been a quiet place. It should have been a a sacred place. But the Jews made it into a loud, raucous, chaotic business place. But the second problem is the evil way that the business was being done. If a person came to the temple to make a sacrifice, if a person came to the temple to make a sacrifice, he would need to present an animal that the priest would say, this animal is acceptable to sacrifice. Now, you could, of course, bring your own animal from home. But Annas had trained his priests to find ways not to approve the animals that were brought from outside. Thus, pilgrims to Jerusalem, and there were at least 
a million and a half who came on the Passover week, they would have to purchase a temple-approved animal, one they happened to be selling in the court of the Gentiles. How convenient for you. And in order to purchase that animal, you've got to use acceptable temple currency because your money from home is dirty and not good enough. So the money changers, who also happen to be located in the court of Gentiles, for your convenience, would accept your outside money and exchange it for temple money. Of course, they may not give you the best most fair rate of exchange, but they're there. Think about going to the airport. You're not allowed to carry a bottle of water through the security line. You guys have noticed this, right? But the folks in the airport, the kind folks in the airport, are happy to sell you a bottle of water on the concourse. And obviously, we know that they're selling those bottles of water on the concourse at competitive prices, right? How many, how many times more than the value of that bottle of water is it selling for on the concourse? Four times? Five times what it would cost you at Walmart? Well, imagine this. Imagine they also sell you airport tokens, and that's the only way that you can get the bottle of water, and they're willing to give you $1 worth of tokens for every $2 you give them. That's getting close to the kind of robbery that was happening in the temple because people were paying 10 times the cost of an animal, maybe, maybe even more, just to be allowed to sacrifice. And the corrupt priests, were lining their pockets with the money that they were stealing from the people. They were using the temple as a corrupt way to cheat people and get rich. That's what was happening. And they used the name of God to do it. And that's what's ugly. Well, Jesus, in righteous anger, enters the court of the Gentiles... And he flips over the tables of the money changers and the animal sellers. And he drives the crooks out. And he quotes the text of two Old Testament prophecies as the justification for what he's doing. Which, by the way, he's doing for the second time in three years. Because Jesus did it in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. And he does it here at the end. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, are one of the texts he cites, he says, the Bible says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, God says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, God says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jeremiah 7, verses 9 through 11, God speaks to the corrupt people abusing the system and then hiding in the temple by saying, Will you steal 
murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Those are the verses Jesus was quoting. The temple was to be a place where God is rightly worshipped. The temple was to be a place where people from all the nations, not just the Jews, could seek the Lord. But the Jewish leaders had made it nearly impossible for a Gentile to come and find God's mercy. They were robbing people and they thought themselves safe because there's the presence of the temple. We can hide in the temple. God must approve of us. It was this sight, this godlessness, this corruption, this travesty of religion that met the eyes of the Savior when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem on Sunday. It was this sight that showed the Savior Israel had not put an end to transgression as God had commanded in Daniel chapter 9. It was this that the Savior would not tolerate from people who were saying that they're the people of God. And Jesus showed us he won't tolerate this by turning over the tables and driving the merchants out of the area. By the way, notice this. Jesus did not destroy anything and he didn't steal anybody's money. He didn't set the doves free and let them fly away. He didn't cost the sellers their wares. He didn't take any of the coins. He just said, get out of here. And something about the fury in the eyes of the Savior and the righteous anger on his face made the people obey. Nobody even tried to arrest Jesus. The Lord himself stood strong and powerful and kingly and righteous and holy. Now, besides being impressed by Jesus, which you should be, and being seized by the significance of this event, because I really do think this is the moment when the countdown clock from Daniel 9 has hit zero and Israel has failed to do what they were commanded. What are we supposed to take from this? That's our first point. Repent of empty religion. Repent of empty religion. God hates empty religion. God hates it when people use his name in vain, in an empty way, in a meaningless way. God hates it when people pretend to be the people of God only to use their religion for worldly gain. God hates it when a politician claims Christianity just so he can get a couple more votes. God hates it when a preacher twists the Bible just to get people to give him a little bit more money. God hates it when a church leader uses his trusted position to abuse a child. And friends, God hates it when you and I make the church about something other than the glory of God and the family of God. We're supposed to be a family. We're supposed to be loving God. And we're supposed to be loving each other with mercy and grace and support. 
We're supposed to be the people of God. We're supposed to worship God with joy and with fear. We're to be the people of God, living lives that are committed to His Word. We're to be the people of God, showing the world by our priorities and by our sharing of the gospel that the Lord God and the promise of eternal life is worth more than anything you could ever gain in this life. So let me ask you, what would it take for you to repent of empty religion? What would it take? I guess it depends where you fall short, doesn't it? you're a Christian, ask the Lord. Examine my heart. Ask the Lord, show me, God, where I don't treat you as holy. Ask the Lord, show me where I don't treat you like you're my king. Ask the Lord to show you where your commitment to him is not full. Confess your sin to God. Turn away from it. Plead with the Lord to have mercy on you, to change you, to shape you into a person whose every day and every part of life shines to God's glory. What we do here is no game. What God calls us to is a full life of obedience and love. Repent of empty religion. Second point. Believe in Jesus as your only hope. Believe in Jesus as your only hope. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Jesus was angry. He was righteously angry at the corruption and the cruelty in the temple system. But get this. That anger did not keep Jesus from being the kind and loving Savior that we know him to be. So as the Savior is in the temple, even after he turns over the tables and drives out the crooks, the blind and the lame are still willing to come to him to seek his mercy. And the Savior, by his power, for the glory of the Lord, healed those people. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 tell us that the act of giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, mobility to the lame, those are all markers of the coming of God's promised king. Yesterday, Sunday, Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem on the colt, declared himself to be God's promised king. Already today, Monday, Jesus has exercised a godly kingly judgment by turning over the temple tables and driving out the money changers. And now Jesus continues to show us his identity as the Messiah, the promised one from God, and he shows us his great love by exercising the God-sized power of healing. How many times have we seen Jesus heal? Time and time and time again. What do the healings show us? When Jesus heals, he shows us he has great tenderness, deep compassion. So many people in our world look at the disabled or the weak and think of them as less valuable as human beings. In the evils of the Third Reich, Hitler and his followers were willing to perform gruesome, evil scientific experiments on the disabled. You guys understand that if I had been born in Nazi Germany, I would have been taken 
to a facility and had electrodes placed on me and shocked and cut and bled and whatever else they wanted to do to me because I'm worth less than you. Do you get that? Because the Germans at that time under Hitler's evil leadership believed that the disabled were subhuman. In other nations in our world today, nearly 100% of infants in the womb who are diagnosed with even markers that hint that they could have Down syndrome are killed in the womb rather than allowing these precious people to live a life that some people have determined is less than worthy. And as evil as actions like that are, where does it come from? Those are the natural outflows of a Darwinistic and naturalistic worldview. If you truly believe that all we are are stacks of chemicals that happen to have lined up in the right random order, you have no consistent argument to say that anything I just said is wrong. Because you have to say that, well, survival of the fittest. The strongest should survive. If you're weak, the, fit, the strong should be able to do with you anything that they want. If you come from a godless worldview, if you decide that God is not the one who determines right and wrong, you have nothing upon which to base morality that would say that we can't kill a baby if it might have a disease or torture a blind person because they're worth less than me. The only thing that you have to say that these people have more value is that they have the image of God on them. It's because of God and his nature. It's because of God and his commands. It's because of God and his words that we see that every human being, black, white, strong, weak, whatever, is worth the same. But if you come from a worldview that says, I reject the existence of God, I think science is it, you no longer have a basis to say what makes one life as valuable as the next. But Jesus shows us in his willingness to heal that God's not like that. Jesus shows us that he sees human beings, healthy, sick, strong, weak, sighted, blind, as having value just because they're created in the image of God Jesus reminds us that because you've been created by God and you're not merely a random stack of chemicals thrust together, you have worth no matter how able you are to perform or not. Aren't you glad that we don't have to compete for worth based on our abilities? How well would you do? Are you as smart as the smartest person in the world? Are you as strong as the strongest person in the world? Are you as beautiful as the most beautiful person in the world? Are you as clever as the cleverest person in the world? Let me tell you something. I love you all and you all ain't close. <laughs> and neither am I. Do you get it? The healings show us the value of people because they have the image of God and the tender kindness of Jesus because he cares even for the weakest. And that's better than any other worldview out there. These healings also identify Jesus as the Son of God, right? He's the promised Messiah. Only God can do the stuff Jesus did. 
Can you heal a blind person? I would like to know. Can you? If you can't, you know why you can't? You're not God. We see Jesus by doing this as God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He gives sight to the blind. He gives healing to those who can't walk. Jesus proves his identity in a way that honest people just can't question. And the healing power of Jesus, dear friends, hints to us at the kingdom of God to come. Praise God that we know there's a kingdom of God to come. The fall of man in the garden through the world into a state of brokenness. The world is scarred by the taint of sin. Human rebellion against God has brought all evil, all sorrow, all sickness, all disability, all death into existence. The first rebellion did that. If our first parents had not turned their back on God, you know, there would have never been a single death in the entire universe. And when Jesus heals, he shows us that he has the power to turn around what mankind has done. Jesus has the power to push back the darkness of the fall and to bring about a healed, restored, renewed creation. And these healings and the connection to Jesus as the anointed one from God, they remind us he's our hope. He's our only hope. That's why the call of the second point is to believe in Jesus as your only hope. Jesus does what only God can do. We sit in a brokenness we can't fix. We lack the power to fix our world. We lack the moral character to fix our world. We lack the willpower to fix our world. We lack the righteousness to approach our God. We have no hope if Jesus does not do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it might be that you're hearing this message this morning and you've never cried out to Jesus to be forgiven and make you a new child of God. Jesus is your only hope. He's the one. He's the only one sent by God to be our Savior. And if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you've got to believe in Jesus, exercising genuine faith. And you've got to let go of your sin, turning to Jesus as your new master and your Lord. You've got to call on Jesus, hand your life over to Jesus, ask Jesus, please be my Savior, because He is your only hope. And for all of us here who have called on Jesus for salvation, we still have to see Jesus as our only hope. His powerful healing, His beautiful kindness, they remind us of His promised kingdom to come. Yeah, Jesus is king already, folks. But He's going to come back and He's going to establish a kingdom on earth. And Jesus, He already defeated death with His resurrection. And here's what He promises. There's going to be a day in the future when He's going to undo the curse of sin, every bit of it. He's going to destroy death with finality. He will eventually set up a brand new heavens and a brand new earth where, where sorrow and pain and death and tears are no more. Jesus is our only hope. And we've got to long for that kingdom to come. When you see him heal, it should make you pray as the final prayer in the Bible cries out, Even so, come Lord Jesus. He's our only our perfect, our glorious hope. Now, our last point for this morning, point number three. 
Worship Jesus as the Christ. Worship Jesus as the Christ. 15 through 17. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It should not catch you by surprise, given the fact that Jesus just completely disrupted the temple business in the court of the Gentiles, that the Jewish religious leaders would eventually show up on the scene. These men did not like that Jesus was showing their practices to be wrong. They didn't like that Jesus threatened their wealth, their power, or their influence. They wanted to use their religion for their own selfish benefit. So they came out to confront Jesus. In contrast, there are children here. The, the word there is that they are young boys, probably over 12 actually. These are boys who may well have been experiencing their first Passover celebration just after their bar mitzvahs. They're there singing the song that everybody was singing the day before. By the way, any of you parents with children, have you ever noticed that sometimes they continue to say things that you wish they wouldn't continue to say? These kids are singing what they sang yesterday, not seeing how upset it's making the Jewish religious leaders. They continue to sing Hosanna to Jesus. They continue to praise him as the Messiah, the son of David, as the only one God has ever sent to rescue God's people. And when the Jewish leaders ask Jesus, do you hear what those guys are, those kids are saying? They're, they're implying that Jesus should shut them up. Stop them from praising you like this. Jesus, they're saying, don't let them call you Messiah. And in truth, if Jesus is not the Messiah, he is completely morally obligated to put a stop to this. But you know what Jesus does? He looks at the Jewish leaders and he quotes from Psalm 8, which we read for our Old Testament reading this morning. And in doing so, he, he points out that it is out of the mouths of infants and babies, out of these young, uneducated men, that God is going to bring forth proper praise. Unlike the uptight scholars who thought they knew how everything ought to be done because we're the smart ones, it's the young boys. Get that! It's the young boys singing and shouting and smiling and celebrating that are getting it right. And with this contrast, we're called by God to take a side. You've got to pick a side, folks. Isn't that a running theme in this passage? Are you willing to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God? Or are you not? Do you think, and listen to me, I want you to think about this really well. Do you think Jesus is the Savior, or do you think Jesus is a fraud? That's what you've got to think of. Friends, there is no room for middle ground here. Jesus shows us from the word of God that the young men have it right when they praise him as the Christ. Are you going to join them? Are you going to get it right? 
Are you going to praise Jesus as the Christ? Of course, this point, like the last one, is a call to salvation. If you're not surrendered to Jesus, you should do so today. Do you remember what I showed you at the beginning? Israel was given a limited time in which to repent. You don't have any idea how much time you have before your life will come to an end. I don't want to over-dramatize that, but do you get it that you have no promise that you'll make it home alive today? Don't put Jesus off today. If you are a believer here this morning, this point ought to call you to worship. Worship Jesus. Worship with more than empty, sterile, heartless words. Worship Jesus with joy like the young men did. Sing the truth about Jesus with gusto, knowing that Jesus really is the Christ and he really is your only hope. Ask the Lord to help you to join in the worship of the Savior with all of your heart. And in many ways, friends, we've arrived back at the first point that we made. We need to see that God hates empty religion. God's not impressed with a person who will mouth the right words, but then who won't follow Jesus with his or her heart and life. The Jewish leader said, oh, we're preserving the religion of the Lord. But they wanted to stop the joyful singing of the praises of Christ. Because they couldn't accept that Jesus is the one God promised. They outwardly showed religion, but they inwardly turned their backs on God. If you're a Christian in a worship service, if you're a Christian in a worship service, you are outwardly declaring yourself to be for God. But how's your heart? How's your worship? How's your amazement at the grace of God? Are you tired of the gospel? Are you tired of hearing the gospel? How's your amazement at the kindness of the Savior? How is your amazement at just the fact that God would have mercy on someone like you? When you worship, are you allowing the Lord to fill your heart with his majesty? Or when you gather together with the people of God, is your heart somewhere else? Do you love the word of God and let it lead you to surrender and obedience? Or do you listen to the word to critique it? Or to apply it to somebody else that you just know needs to be listening? By the way, let's just be honest real quick. How many of you have done that? Sat here in this room, heard something preached and thought, Ooh, I know who needs to hear that. It's you. It's you whom God needs to hear this. Friends, the word of God is quite simple, actually. It's not a complicated book. But because of our sinfulness, obeying the word of God costs us everything. What's it come down to? Love God. Believe in him and love him. See his holiness as it compares to your sinfulness, your rebellion, and mine. See how much we deserve hell, because we do. See how much buying our pardon cost Jesus Christ. See the grace of God and let it lead you to feel the overwhelming joy of being forgiven. That God would have looked at you and said, I want that one. (laughs) That's nuts. 
and let that joy come out of you when you sing the truth. Regardless of whether the song is your favorite song or whether the style is your favorite style, let the glorious truth of salvation overflow as you marvel at the grace of God. But don't just feel joy in worship. True joy, true worship includes lives of obedience. The Bible calls us to love God and to love each other and to live to the glory of God. The Bible calls us to repent of the things God says are sin. And you know if you read the word of God at all, you know the things in your life where you're tempted to sin against God. Battle it. Repent to the glory of God. Fight to love other Christians. Crush your own tendencies to pride and self-centeredness. Have mercy and grace for others. Turn away from your own sin. Magnify Christ as you do what he says, loving God, loving others, and let it be a life in which you worship Jesus as the Christ. You know, the young men shouted praises. And they celebrated the arrival of Jesus. The stodgy religious leaders scowled at Jesus and refused to bow down. This morning, you will be one or the other. Will you fold your arms, stiffen your neck, and turn away from Jesus? Friends, that way leads to destruction. Or will you see the glory and the grace of Jesus, believe in his identity as the Son of God, he's the promised one, And bow to him with your life. May we be a people, dear friends, who love Jesus, who love each other, and who take no part in empty religion. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, we need you. Please, God, grant us your mercies. Act on our lives. Convict and comfort and change us. If anyone here doesn't know you, I pray that you will bring them to life. For all here who do know you, I pray you will bring us to lives of faithful obedience. Be magnified. Lord, work on our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.